time for This Week in Chicago History with Anna DeVlantis, sponsored by UChicagoMedicine.org. It was exactly seven years ago today. We were also talking mm. about severe weather, weren't we, Anna? Tornadic activity, you know, um, they'll tell you that this is pretty rare for February, but it happened in 2017, and we do have a Tom Skilling reference in this, which I think, um, gosh, it's just a beautiful one, and I'm so sad that he's leaving Tom like everyone else. But this week, 2017, let's go back to that moment in time. This, um, I know we had tornadic activity last night move through, but this was much worse. If anyone could think back, and if you were in Ottawa at the time, even Naperville or parts of Joliet, 71 confirmed tornadoes moved through the Midwest uh, this week in 2017. One of them was an EF4 that actually swept through Missouri and made it to our state line. There were a series of five tornadoes that touched down in LaSalle and Grundy counties, just a severe weather night. Uh, A lot of attention to emergency officials tending to so many scenes across our area. A lot of people turning to Tom Skilling, uh, I'm sure, at that moment in time. And we pulled this great clip, Bob, um, a reminder of of Tom Skilling and how much we rely on him at moments like this, severe weather and that kind of thing. But he was able to go along with storm chasers in 2010. This is a clip from 2010, searching for a tornado, only to find one springing up behind them and started chasing them. Here's Tom Skilling talking about it. Oh, my God. Look at that. My God. We are being chased by a tornado. We're being, we're being, we've been chased by a tornado by work. Extraordinary. A multiple vortex tornado racing down the road as fast as we were moving, and we were going at 55 miles an hour. He was never happier in his life. I'll tell you something about that. Tom's so excited. One time I was driving in southern Illinois and I saw a funnel cloud aloft. It it didn't yeah. uh, come down to the ground. And I was really frightened. It is scary. If you've never seen one, I mean, you just get the feeling of helplessness. I give all the credit in the world to storm chasers who are doing it in the name of science because you're right. If I'm anywhere near it, Bob, you just it just it is such a frightening experience, and you just I just want to freeze when I'm near anything like that because you feel like what do you do? What do you do? It's so powerful, this act of nature, and we've all seen witness the damaging results and the devastation that follows. But just to see Tom in that moment, I just I don't know. Second to me on the only after the eclipse, watching Tom Skilling yeah. see the eclipse, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> my favorite moment. <laughs> Uh, Let's go back now uh, to uh, uh, a big scandal, 2014 this week. Tell us about this. 2014, Bob, red light camera scandal. It started to come to light this week then. The Tribune did a big uh, article about um, exposing some of the corruption behind the contracts involved. Now, and it grew into this intricate web of corruption that, you know, ensnared company execs and elected officials and city workers, too. You know, red light cameras were always hated by the driving public, but this was a new reason to hate them. The evidence started to emerge that the 100 million plus city contract had been awarded on the backs of major bribes. Um, And it launched this years-long federal investigation, started with the city's number two transportation department official, John Bills, an unfortunate name for a guy who the feds say took a lot of bills, $2 million in cash and gifts, uh, vacations. They said he took golf trips, a condo in Arizona. He was driving a Mercedes and $600,000 in cash, according to the feds. And here's what John Bills said and what prosecutors said after he was convicted in that trial. 
It was just me being me and a regular guy placed in a tough position, and I made some tremendous, tremendous ethical mistakes. I was a mid-level manager put in a position to work on one of the largest red light, you know, one of the largest contracts in the city of Chicago, not having one day experience and never working on a contract in my life. He was the program director over that contract from inception to finish. To me, that's not what I think of when I think of middle manager. That is a significant entrustment of public power and responsibility to a single human being who then violated that trust. When we have evidence that officials are robbing the taxpayers, we have to pursue those with vigor and make sure that we, we get them right. I'll tell you something, no doubt uh, a moneymaker for the city, but uh, did it make uh, the road safer at all? That's always the that's always always the battle here. I mean, I think that the argument for installing them initially was safety. It was just that, but there have been studies, Bob, that show that there are increases in rear end collisions, in particular, in red light camera intersections. The Tribune did one of those um, in studies a while back that talked about this and, and documented it, and then mentioned that rolling right turns on red lights are really what a majority of the tickets go to in certain intersections, which really aren't a safety factor. Oak Brook PD did another one at Route 83 and 22nd. That intersection dramatically found that um, the red, the rear end collisions went up after the installation of the red light cameras. So yeah, there you go. We've, we've all been behind a car and you're approaching one of those intersections where there's a sign or a camera enforced and, and, and the person in front of you just uh, hits on the, the brakes. Right? <laughs> no, never fails. Uh, let's uh, uh, let's uh, get to some uh, Oprah history now. 1990, Harpo Studios on the West Side opened um, with an unveiling to the media. Did you? Were you one of those peep select individuals over there, Bob? I was wondering about this. N- no. No, I no. didn't. No, I, I I have some stories about uh, Oprah, but uh, that's that's not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, only thirty reporters were allowed, so and I think some of them were national too. So I don't know who was on that exact list, but a little over three years after her show went national, Oprah opened and debuted Harpo Studios, a twenty million dollar studios on the West Side. There, um, reinvigorating that neighborhood. By the way, it's the center of the universe now with all the corporate headquarters. McDonald's is now in that exact space. But Oprah said ownership of her show and ownership of the studios where the show was filmed were important to her. She figured that out early in her career. And before that, she had filmed at WLS Channel 7 and was kind of an employee there. And interestingly, she said that this whole thing grew out of her desire to be granted a fifth week of vacation. (laughs) She was denied. She said she was trying to go for five weeks, and they said no. Um, She's like, you know what? I want control of my own destiny. And here's a very Oprah-like explanation of that time in her life, how she felt. I had written in the journal, I'm going to paraphrase, something about wanting God to be my guide and to lead me and to allow me to be a vehicle for um, whatever the future, whatever the greater universe saw as the future for myself. And I think I've, I've held as true to that covenant as I could. <laughs> and a brand new car for everybody. Remind me uh, one of these mornings, yep. Anna, to tell you about uh, my experience at an Oprah Christmas party and, and getting the producer oh. who invited me in big trouble. So I'll, uh, I'll save that. Bob. Okay. For time. <laughs> That's that sounds uh, juicy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so mad. Oh, yeah. 
It all started for John Belushi this week in 1971. Anna. It did, Bob. Long before Blues Brothers John Belushi, there was Second City John Belushi. This week, 1971, John Belushi joined the improv troupe at the Second City. Uh, there's this great quote from a fellow actor who was on stage with him at the time, John Flaherty, and he said, the first time I saw John Belushi, I thought he was some sort of auto mechanic who had stumbled into the theater. It's <laughs> no respect from the beginning, but he earned it later, Bob. Belushi, of course, then a no-name, unknown talent, 21 years old, the son of an Albanian immigrant from Wheaton. He brought this whole new approach to comedy, and audiences loved it. I pulled a clip from uh, 71 uh, from Chicago Magazine, by the way, promoting one of his first performance, if not the first, and they spelled his name Belusky. <laughs> so that didn't happen again much later um, in life, but uh, we also pulled a clip here from the early days on the Second City stage in 1972. Yes, indeed. Jesus Rodriguez, child of poverty, man of anger. This was your life. Never see Jesus. Your father passed away. And he says, you decided to start your own business. And why don't you tell the people what you did? Well, I said they used the automobile parts. You know, hubcaps, bucket seats. Mm-hmm. And I understand you had some trouble with overhead? Well, some guy hit me over the head when I was stealing his hubcap. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, <be dead>. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you something. Everybody, anyone I ever talked to about uh, Belushi's first days says the same thing. They knew right away this guy had something <sighs> special. Everybody says the same thing. He was immediately, uh, immediately a hit. Uh, let's talk about it. our own Walter Jacobson. And man, oh man, I, I still remember him moaning and groaning about being miserable. <laughs> Tell us about and that's this. That's just yesterday. That's just right. yesterday in the office I share with him, Bob. At WGN. But no, no, back in 1991, it was worse because our good friend and colleague, Walter Jacobson, made quite an impact on the city with his series of reports. And a lot of people will remember this. A lot of our listeners on homelessness. It was a six-piece series, Mean Street Diaries, it was called. And Walter disguised himself as a homeless man, went to live on Lower Wacker for 48 hours to try to understand and explain the plight of our homeless population to TV audiences. It was one of the most sensational or state-sensationalistic news reports ever to hit Chicago airwaves, depending on your perspective. We pulled a clip here from one of those reports, Walter Jacobson, undercover as a homeless person. At first glance, the man in the beard and coat is just another homeless, faceless person. But if you look closely, you might recognize this is a well-known man. Walter Jacobson became homeless, walking the streets, looking for food, a place to sleep, a way to survive. Lower Wacker Drive is in every story ever told about the homeless because it's where they seem to be the easiest to find. I've been down here many times over the years interviewing the homeless under those warm air vents from the garages above and in their cardboard boxes. Two weeks ago I came down here looking for a little warm air and a cardboard box for myself and some understanding, if possible, of what it's really like to be homeless. With just $3 in my pocket, I spent 48 hours on the streets, beginning on one very cold afternoon. Yeah, that was uh, CBS2, the great Mike Parker introducing the segment, and Walter did it again years later on Fox 32, and he, he took a lot of heat, didn't he? He did. You know, I, I don't, it's just interesting because the TV critics 
just went after him, that this is just all in the name of ratings and sensationalistic reporting, and why does a reporter have to pretend to be a homeless man, and what are you accomplishing? Well, Walter still, uh, to this day, I know he, he says he accomplished his goal. He was humanizing the homeless. He was bringing a lot of attention to their cause. People were not talking about him, and, and he showed what it was like. He said he was miserable two, two days later, just miserable, and showed how no, no establishment would let him even look in the window he was shoot away, or he tried to go to the state of Illinois building, and they said, get out of here. Um, just some things that he said he brought to light that people otherwise might not have thought about. So, And you, you can still hear Walter's perspective Thursday mornings here on uh, our show between 9 and 9.30. Finally, we have some candy history. Yep, a lot of it in Chicago, Bob. We love these. Lots of successful candy stories, candy brands that started here. Bit of honey. Are you a fan of the bit of honey? I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> I hate bit of honey. And I'll <laughs> tell you a story. <laughs> uh, we had a, there was a candy machine, a vending machine in the Park Field House uh, where mm-hmm. I grew up, Eugene Field. And bit of honey was always in there. And I don't want to tell you what uh, we referred, uh, what we called bit of honey. It was a bit of something else. Mm. <laughs> but tell us, tell us about the history here. <laughs> okay, now you're going to have me guessing. Is it really crude and horrible that you can't <laughs> yeah. even see it on the radio? Oh my yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, use your imagination. <laughs> All right, 1924 Taffy Company. Oh, I'm still thinking about it. Okay, Schaefer Johnson Company added this uh, this whole. They, everyone was doing taffy candy. They made it honey flavored. Took off. Lots of people loved it. And then they add the almonds for crunch. I'm not a fan either, though, um, because of the, the stickiness to the teethiness. You know that whole thing. So, Bob, you got me wondering about that story. You can't tell us. You can't even wait. We did, it, it wasn't. Oh. It wasn't the stickiness. So we were not crazy about the taste. Let's just say that. I didn't. I didn't even know there was any Chicago history attached to it. I know. I know. It's another one of those. Lots of candy stories. A lot of the big innovations in candy right here in Chicago. Pretty cool. This week in Chicago history, Anna. More next Wednesday. Thank you. Talk to you then, Bob. <laughs> Come on. Guess what I called it.